Thank you for tuning in into the New Life Church Downtown Podcast. If you would like to get connected, follow us on Instagram at NLC Downtown Little Rock or email us at downtown.podcast at newlifechurch.tv. The summer before I went to college, I realized I'm either going to go closer to the Lord or get farther away for him, from him when I'm in college. I knew it was going to be the, the other. Now, I had not grown up in a real good church, I'll just have to say. And my prayer, but, but I knew the Lord, and I, I, I'd read the New Testament and some of the Old Testament by that time. And so I said, Lord, if there is any more to Christianity, I want you to take me closer to you rather than let me fall away when I get to college. Now, that was an honest prayer. I didn't know there was any more. I had no clue at what God might have for me. Then I got there, and I met some Christian guys, and we would pray together, and I'd never had friends that would do that before. I mean, and you know, when you're in college, you don't care what time it is. We'd go over at each other's dorm rooms at midnight and be praying with each other. And God just opened up worlds uh, that I had no clue were around. And as, as this started becoming more and more real, I thought, you know, I can figure out what I want to do, and I can ask God to bless my life. Or I could say, God, would you show me your plan for life and history and your big plan and show me where you want me to fit into your plans so that rather than asking God to bless my plans, which I thought would be pretty good, uh, I said, God, show me your plan. And I never had any clue what a wild, crazy uh, life that would lead to. Uh, I met my wife, Beverly, my first weekend in college. We got to know each other in this small fellowship group. By the next spring, we were talking about getting married, and it scared us both. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do for a living. Uh, the first thing God led me to do was to go to law school. I became a lawyer. I practiced law uh, right here. I was over in at uh, Barbara McCaskill, Amsler and Jones Law Firm. My father was a senior partner, and I practiced law for eight years there. And then God started working in my heart, and it's like, okay, I got some different plans for you now. And I was, we were thinking, I'm going to be a lawyer all my adult life. And instead, I end up in seminary, and I become a pastor. And I pastored in different churches for 17 years. And that was fun. But as I'm doing this, I'm reading through the scriptures and saying, God, what is your plan? I'm still looking for it. I'm getting a better picture of it. But I'm still looking for, God, what is your plan and how do you fit me into that plan? And he used me when I was practicing law. He used me as a pastor. But 
he surprised us by saying, okay, now you're going to be missionaries. And we said, what? By this time, I'm in my 50s. You know, so we said, okay, God, if you, you know, now we weren't real spiritual, I'll have to say. Uh, I said, God, and we prayed, God, we'll be willing to go anywhere that you're willing to make us willing to go. <laughs> and, you know, he showed us, I got invited to pastor a church in Moscow. And we visited the church in Moscow, and I hated it. You know, we visited, I got offered a position to teach in a seminary in Sudan. And they said, the only thing is, is that we want you to go in the summer when it's 112, 14 degrees and the bugs and snakes are out and just see how you like it there. And um, that didn't sound real good to us. Uh, I had taught in a law school in Ukraine, and that's what I wanted to do was to go to Ukraine because I taught in a Bible school there, and it was lovely. And God shut that down. The place he ended up sending us, we thought we couldn't ever go. But all of a sudden, looking at Moscow and looking at Sudan, Albania looked a whole lot better. Uh, I mean, most of the streets weren't paved. The corrupt government was corrupt. Uh, it was not an easy place to live, but we decided to be a whole bunch easier than those other places. Um, it's, life has been an incredible adventure for us. Uh, but part of it is trying to say, okay, God, how do I fit in your plan? And so what we're going to talk about this morning is God's overall plan so that you can ask him right where you are, where do I fit in? Am I fitting in exactly where you want me to fit into your plan? Now, you may be a teenager, and you got lots of time for God to, to show you. On the other hand, we've got friends who are in the 80s, who just le left a couple of years ago to move to be missionaries in Indonesia. So my, my mentor, when I was thinking about Albania, he moved to Albania at age 62. Hey, I'm 54. I can't argue that I'm too old. You know, I, you try to do that. But for the 52 or 3 years I've known Beverly, we have had a wild ride. Now, I want us to look and see at what God's plan is. We're going to look first at the Scriptures, and then we're going to see how he starts to fulfill his plan in the first 1,500 years of church history. Now, I teach her church history in Bible schools and seminaries sometime, and I usually get 30 hours, not 30 minutes. So I'm upset about all the stuff I have to leave out, but I'm excited about the stuff I get to talk about. Um, when we look at the Bible, you know, God created 
Genesis 1 and 2, a perfect world, perfect animals, perfect people. Everything was wonderful until Adam and Eve decided to go their own way and disobey God. And after that, we have lots of evil and violence in the world. So bad that, I mean, the earliest skulls that we have show that they were beaten in, the people were murdered, and cooked for the brains so that people could eat the brains out of the people. I mean, murder has just, it's been ever since the fall, murder, violence, sickness, it's been terrible. And God came up with a plan to fix the situation. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the details, but in Genesis 12, he picked a guy named Abraham. He was Abram. God named him Abraham, father of many nations. And he says in Genesis 12, 3, I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is God's plan from the first. He makes a covenant and an agreement with Abraham that he's going to be a blessing to all the nations, all the families on earth. And we see the New Testament as God gives Moses, he gives the law, the Ten Commandments, so that people, God's people, can learn how to live a life that works right. And that's what it's about. And when you don't live in the way that works right, it doesn't work. But in the New Testament, Jesus came and he provided the way for us to have the power in us to live the things that are in the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament to live them in power. The strange thing is that he still has his plan, but it's kind of weird the way he decides to work out his plan. He says in Matthew, this is in his closing days to his disciples, Matthew 28, starting with 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. That doesn't mean look at. That means to do all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So Jesus' plan is for us to take this good news of believing in Jesus, of forgiveness for our sins, of walking in fullness of life, not just to keep it for us, but to take it around the world. In Acts 1.8, some of Jesus' very last words, he says, you'll receive power, we need that, from the Holy Spirit when he's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, the problem that got me, I heard a preacher talking about this, and he said the problem here is he doesn't say you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem or Samaria, or the ends of the earth, he connected it all with and. Somehow, he wants 
all of us to be connected to his plan locally for our region and to the ends of the earth. And I say, Lord, how in the world do we do that? How in the world did you do that? And that what, that's what brings us to church history because we can see what God has done and we can see how he's used just ordinary people like you and me to start working his plan. Uh, it started uh, probably around the year 33, and I call this the first period of church history. Um, now, church history periods, um, every church historian will come up with a different way to do periods. In fact, I do every time I teach it. Uh, God didn't just set it out in exact periods because it's a flow of what God's doing. But we see on Pentecost that God, we, we can, you can read about that in Acts chapter 2. God poured out his Holy Spirit on a whole bunch of Jews who were gathered. They came from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. And so you've got all these Jews who had, I mean, some of them didn't even speak uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. They spoke their own language from wherever they were from, in Egypt or in Italy or uh, Tur what's now Turkey. They were scattered all over. They'd come back, and they heard Peter preach. And several thousand became believers. They heard Peter preach, and they heard it in their own language. It's like the Tower of Babel gets reversed here. And then they go home, and they tell other people about Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this because, hey, these are ordinary people just like you and me. And they're just going and telling their neighbors and friends. And so we start to see the good news get spread out over the earth. But it doesn't stop there uh, because they're talking to Jews. And then Peter has a vision. The apostle Peter, Jesus' disciple, has a vision. And God shows him it's not just for you Jews. It's for the Gentiles too. It's for everybody. It's to go to the whole ends of the earth. And Peter says, no, that can't be. And God said, oh, yeah, it is. And so Peter goes and people knock on his door and say, we need to come to this Roman soldier's house named Cornelius. And Peter goes there and shares the good news with them because hey, God told him to. God gave him a vision. That's what it took. And when they got there, all of a sudden, all of these Romans get filled with the Holy Spirit and they start worshiping God. And the Jews are amazed. You mean God's given the good news not just for Jews, but for all these Gentiles too? And Peter said, yep, that's what it is. And uh, God, as the news starts to spread, it's for the Gentiles. God calls a, a hardened Pharisee named Paul and strikes him down on the road and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul looks up, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, Jesus was in heaven, but his people were the people God was persecuting. 
And so God converts Paul, and Paul starts reading the stuff in the Old Testament, and he realizes this is a message for the whole world. And so Paul travels around a lot of the Roman Empire, planting churches, helping other people plant churches, teaching them about Jesus. But it doesn't stop there because it leaks out. The people in those big cities go back home to their small towns. They tell their family. They tell their friends. Uh, People who are tradesmen uh, traveling on the trade routes, they hear about Jesus and they tell other people about Jesus. And the church, just underground, unorganized, ordinary people, tell other ordinary people about Jesus. And it gets to be a real problem in the Roman Empire because these ordinary people all of a sudden won't sacrifice to the Roman emperor or the Roman gods anymore, and that was your patriotic duty. That was more important than saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag or doing anything else. You had to do that to be a good Roman citizen, otherwise you were a traitor. And there was a guy, uh, governor uh, of one of the Roman colonies named Pliny, Pliny the Younger. You can look him up on the internet and read a lot of his letters and stuff. But he had a problem. He didn't really want to kill all these Christians, but they wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, He wrote Emperor Trajan saying, this is what I'm doing with the Christians. It's okay. Here's part of his letter. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I've observed the following procedure. I interrogate them as to whether they're Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. He said, I postponed my investigation and hastened to consult you for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. He said, for many persons of every age, every rank, also of both sexes, will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. You see, Christianity has gone by just ordinary people traveling around, telling their families, telling their friends, being intentional about telling people about Jesus and the good news of his abundant life. And I want to say to us, ask yourself and ask the Lord, where do I fit into God's plan for the gospel here in Little Rock, in our region, and to the ends of the earth. Now, as we move farther in, first, in church history, we see some people we call the apologists. We would probably date them from 1 to 200, roughly, still in this big first period of church history. And these are the people, you know, a lot of them were hey, they were pretty smart. They had listened to 
these, I mean, we even have slaves becoming bishops at this point, church leaders and pastors. And slavery was not a racial deal at that time, but slaves weren't looked up on. Uh, but in the church, hey, it's who's walking with God? Some of these people wrote and preached and taught in logical ways to be able to, to defend the gospel. This is reasonable. This is what God has done. This is who God is. Uh, they were focused on defending the faith on the outside. Others of them were defending the faith from the inside on people, particularly we call the Gnostics. They were the people who, they were really spiritual, but they just kind of picked and chose the parts of the Bible that they liked. Uh, and we can have that today. We can have people that seem really spiritual, but are not grounded in the Bible and don't pay much attention to it. That's what some of these apologists were engaged in. They didn't do serious uh, examination of the scriptures. Another group of people we have, we call martyrs. Martyr uh, persecution tended to be intense but sporadic through the first 300 years of church history. And it would be in one place, but it would be just very intense in that place, particularly focused on pastors and church leaders, but not exclusively. Uh, one of my favorites is a man named Polycarp. And, you know, again, you can go on the Internet and you can read the account of his death. It's several pages long. But he was accused of being a Christian. He was brought in uh, before the Romans and in an arena. And, you know, the Roman governor didn't really want to burn him up. Uh, it's, it's not really good because people wonder, why is this guy willing to die for what he believes? And so the governor says, why don't you just, all you need to do is say you reject Christ, just denounce him and just tell everybody, I mean, they called Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. And so the governor says, just say, away with the atheists. And so Polycarp stood up and with a little grin on his face in the middle of this arena surrounded by all these Romans who were there to watch him burn up, he says, away with the atheists. Talking about, I mean, you talk about a sense of humor when you're getting ready to get burned to death. But his death in that way People saying, there's something to this. And so the martyrs and their death, and there were hundreds of them, it sowed the seeds for the church because people are saying, there's something real here. Uh, we also start to see the early church fathers. We see people who, okay, they devote themselves to seriously studying the scripture and to try to, because the, under, the Old Testament doesn't tell us a whole lot about who Jesus is. It doesn't give us the details. And as we uh, 
look through this period of time, the church is struggling to understand the scriptures and how, who Jesus is and how he saves us. And uh, the big argument was, uh, the, the first really big argument was over a bishop named Arius down in Egypt. And he said, well, we have God the Father and Jesus the Son, and God the Father created Jesus. He's not fully God. He's kind of a created God, kind of halfway between God and man. And people thought, well, so what? Is that a big deal? I mean, he's Jesus. He died for us and so forth. And the problem is, well, let me give you a story. Uh, a man runs up to you and he says, Jesus saved me. Jesus saved me. I was lost. I was totally lost. I was out in nowhere and Jesus found me and he brought me back to life. And you say, hey, that's wonderful. And then he says, yeah, I was way out. I had been lost for four days. I'd been camping and I got lost and my wife found a man who had a dog named Jesus. And she let him smell my clothes. And Jesus found me and saved me. Now, it's a silly story. But the fact is, if we don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, we don't get saved. And the, the Jesus that the Arians were preaching was not the Jesus of the Bible. And some of the early church fathers believed this. It, it, it was a huge problem. Constantine was a Roman emperor, became emperor, I think it was around 306. He converted to Christianity, uh, at least in some form. Uh, he made Christianity legal. And by 325, all these Christians were arguing about whether uh, Arius was right or these other people were right. And he called a council. He invited like 1,800 bishops from all over the world, the Roman Empire, and somewhere between 2 and three, 350 came. And they ended up coming up with the Nicene Creed, which says that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. Uh, that he was not created. And so we think, okay, everything's fine. One of the guys that came to that is a man named Athanasius. He was in his 20s. He was assistant to the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. And I really like Athanasius. Um, now, I'll have to tell you, one of my best friends here in Little Rock is a black man. And he's a pastor, and he's about twice as big as I am. Uh, and he's not just tan black, he's black black. And I'm short, he's tall. Now, Athanasius, his, his enemies attacked him, calling him the black dwarf. And I, you know, it's like, I'm the short one, so I'll be the dwarf and he'll be the black half. Uh, <laughs> but Athanasius really stood alone in the following years in 
preaching and saying, Arius was wrong. Jesus is fully God. He got thrown out of the Roman Empire. He got exiled for what he was preaching. He had four different emperors mad at him. And yet he stood for the truth. And uh, it has made a difference for us today. Uh, one church historian describes him as the principal instrument after the apostles by which the sacred truths of Christianity have been conveyed and secured for us today. We owe a lot to this short little black man who was willing to suffer for years on end for the sake of the truth of the gospel. Now, we have, by the end of this period, Christianity, I mean, it was slow taking off, and then it starts rise way up. And Augustine of Hippo uh, becomes a preacher of grace. And he preached grace in ways that we still, that shape the way we still believe today. His books are good reading for us today. Uh, now, when he became a Christian, he had to leave his girlfriend that he was living with. Uh, he wasn't, that was a real struggle. It took him a long time to realize that God was going to be better than anything else. Um, as we move through history ever after that, we see the victory of God's grace. In uh, 600, uh, we, start, we see a guy named Pope Gregory. I like him. He wrote a great book on pastoral care. I have it in my library. Uh, he was a pastor to the people. But the Roman Empire, the capital had moved to Constantinople. He was in Rome. He didn't have any support. The barbarians were coming. He, I mean, the church at this point, uh, Gregory had sent missionaries to England. But the church hadn't done much missionary work, so the Lord brought all the barbarians to Rome. They conquered Rome. And they, guess what? They heard the gospel. And they became real Christians. You know, it's, it's like if God's going to get that message out there and done, he does the same thing with us today. In the United States, we're full of people who are Muslims. And it's an opportunity God's bringing us to tell them the gospel. I have probably bought, baptized more Muslims than I have Americans. That is fun to do, to see them come to Jesus. But uh, Gregory the Great was a believing, wasn't perfect, but he was a believing pope, uh, we have Charlemagne, who was emperor in 800, and he tried to bring Christianity to unite all of Europe as a Christian nation, a Christian empire. Uh, we have, as we move toward the end of this era, a guy, uh, we have the Crusades. A sad, sad situation, because what happened is the Christians started thinking, 
we've got Christianity, we're better than these people. They didn't recognize, I'm a sinner saved by grace. These people are sinners, they need grace too. And so they used Vikings, some of them were descendants of the Vikings. In fact, all of the leaders were descendants of the Vikings. And Christianity, they'd become Christians, but it hadn't shaped the way they think. And then you have the Muslims and the way they have taken over all of North Africa. And so we Christians started thinking that we could do something, that we were better and that we needed to just go by military force and take over the Holy Land. Terrible mistake. Uh, it kind of ended when uh, shortly before the Black Death, the bubonic plague took England, it took not England, Europe, and killed at least a third, maybe a half of the population. The people who were most devastated were the monks uh, because they would stay and help the people who were dying and they would die themselves. Uh, we make a lot of fun of monks sometimes. We have ancient history because of the monks. They copied all of the works. That's, that's why we know what happened in Greece and Rome and we don't know what happened in South America. Same kind of cultures, everything, but we know nothing because they didn't have the monks to make the copies of the books. Uh, now, in the midst of all this, we have ordinary people. We've got people like St. Francis who decides, I'm going to just leave a, live a simple life and walk with Jesus. And we have genuine Christians in an age when the church gains much secular power and in many ways becomes corrupt. There's still genuine, solid Christians walking with Jesus through the whole period. This was the situation in 1500 when we see a corrupt church with lots of committed believers who belong to that church. And all of a sudden, God started working in a guy named Martin Luther to bring the church back to the scriptures. Now, I'm not going to go into that. That's for our next time. But um, what I want us to see, to sum all this up, is for you to ask yourself, to, to recognize, hey, God has a plan. He has a plan for his glory to be over all the earth, <coughs> as it says in uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. He has a plan for every family on earth to be blessed by knowing and loving the Lord Jesus. Now, we can know that plan. God's been working his plan through all of these centuries with lots of ups and downs. He's been faithful to his people, and he's a good God. And so I want to ask you to say, I want to say, God has a plan for you, however young, however old. He has a plan for you to fit into his big plan, his plan for reaching millions. What is your part?
Hey guys, Pastor Bronson here. Just want to say thank you for listening in. Uh, our hope and our prayer is that this podcast equips you on your walk, your journey with Jesus. And so please like, subscribe, share, help us spread the word. We love you.